This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. Today we bring you award-winning author Terry Tempest-Williams speaking about and reading from her new collection called Erosion, Essays of Undoing at an event sponsored by Blue Hill Books, The Bay School, and WERU last month. It was recorded by WERU volunteer Phelan Gallagher. Terry Tempest-Williams was introduced by Samantha Haskell of Blue Hill Books. I'm Samantha Haskell. I'm the owner of Blue Hill Books. Um, I'm so honored to be here with you all tonight. Um, people were asking at the door about making donations. We're so proud to have all of our events be free and open to the public. Um, but donations at the door will go to the Utah Diné Bakea, which is an intertribal coalition working on behalf of Bears Ears, which is uh, an organization that's very close to Terry's heart. So um, please. Yeah. Um, feel, feel free to make a donation on the way out if that works for you. Um, I'd like to thank the Bay School, they're a co-sponsor of this event, and I'm so grateful to them for sharing this beautiful space. Um, Emlyn Hall holds so many memories for all of us, so thank you for opening your doors to us tonight. WERU is our media sponsor. Uh, Phelan Gallagher is here running our sound system. So we're so glad to have him and Holly back in our community. Thank you, Phelan. Um, Matt Murphy is a local hero, and even though he wasn't able <laughs> to make it tonight, um, his support in getting the word out and setting up this morning was so appreciated. Um, I cannot go any further without thanking Matt Shaw, who is the other half of Blue Hill Books. I'm so grateful for him and his presence, and none of our events would be possible without him. Um, so, one of the gifts of now owning a bookstore that originally opened the year I was born is the legacy, um, the friendships and relationships to the store that have come with it, and um, having been built over all those generations. Terry's first author event in Blue Hill was on book tour for Leap, which I think was in 2000. Is that right? Yeah. Um, a total whim orchestrated by a mutual friend at Random House, which led to lifelong friendships here. Um, she returned for events with Nick and Mariah for every book she published after that. Um, this is her first book since the transition of ownership at the store, and I'm so deeply grateful to be continuing the tradition of Blue Hill Books and our community being included in her tours. She and Brooke now call the peninsula a home, not just in the sense of having a house here, but in her connection to this place and the people, and I'm so glad to celebrate that tonight. Terry really needs no introduction, but since I'm up here, I'll just <laughs> say that she hails from the deserts of Utah. She's the recipient of many literary awards over her career, including the spring when she was elected into the American Academy of Arts and Letters. She's currently the writer in residence at Harvard Divinity School. Erosion is a powerful book. It's beautiful wild and emotional, as all of her books are. But these essays are intimate and vulnerable and open in ways that are tender and new. It is urgent and it is honest. Terry, we are all here with you tonight and are grateful for your courage and your words helping us forward through difficult times. Please join me in welcoming Terry Tempest-Williams. 
Good evening. Thank you, Samantha. This just means so much to me to be here. And thank you so much for coming out on this crisp, chilly night with these beautiful winter berries. And um, it means so much to see you. And Brooke and I are thrilled to be back home here in Blue Hill. And Samantha, this is a, a huge moment, you know, just to be able to honor you. Um, for your strength, for your intelligence, for your courage, um, and your grace to carry the tradition of Blue Hill books forward into your generation and honor the integrity and hard work and love of community that Nick and Mariah have instilled. And I see just the beautiful young people here tonight and to me, this is where hope dwells. So we honor you from our hearts. And as you said, um, Blue Hill Books changed our lives. And I had no idea where this place was. Um, I heard some rumor about Peter, Paul, and Mary. <laughs> and that it was beautiful and I'll never forget when Brooke and I were driving here we were absolutely we just fell in love with this place and then when we met Nick and Mariah and Samantha and so many of you um, and the bay Morgan Bay I think we were late I came we'd been swimming um, I looked like a drowned rat and I thought who possibly could be here and it was full and our hearts have been full ever since. So thank you for welcoming us into um, this beautiful community. And Matt, thank you for your work here at the bookstore. It's, it's wonderful to always come in and see either you or Samantha um, and know what you're reading and what you're recommending. Thank you to WERU and thank you Phelan for being here. Um, and to the Bay School, so many memories, it's true. Um, I'm nervous, and I hope you'll bear with me. Uh, Erosion is a difficult book. In many ways, it's a dark book. Um, it's unadorned, and I feel like that's where we are right now. Um, And I'm just beginning to really understand what this is. As a writer, um, I've always followed my questions. And I think for me, the question is, how is it that at this moment in time, we are both eroding and evolving at once together? Um, years ago, Brooke, uh, we met at 19, I was 19, he was 23 in Salt Lake City, Utah. Again, at a bookstore, he bought all my favorite books. And he was with a young woman, a beautiful woman who was an artist. And as they were, I was behind the cash register. And as he came in and he had these books, he said to her, my one dream in life is to one day own all the Peterson Field Guides. And she said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and without thinking, I said, I already have them. <laughs> and we were married in, uh, 
and I think about four months later. <laughs> so, but shortly after we were married, we were talking about Southern Utah and what we loved, and with field guides in hand, Burke said, what do you think of the Grand Canyon? Because he had just come off of this river trip of the Colorado River. And I said, well, I'm embarrassed to tell you I've never been there. I've lived in Utah all my life. My father did not feel that that was a necessary field trip because he said it all looks the same. <laughs> uh, and Brooke said, well, we have to go. And we went, we went to the North Rim and he blindfolded me and led me to the edge. And when I took off the blindfold, I remember being absolutely stunned. And I said to him, why didn't someone tell me about this? You know, and he said, well, I think people have heard of the Grand Canyon. <laughs> but it was in that moment that I really took in what erosion means. And to me, what moved me so much about the Grand Canyon and three billion years of stratigraphy, of rocks that tell time differently, it wasn't what remained that moved me. It was what had been whittled and worn and weathered away through wind, water, and time. I wanted to know where did everything go? What happened here? And I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten that as a human being, and I've never forgotten that as a writer, that whatever exists between the lines, whatever gets written draft after draft after draft and pulled away, somehow energetically it remains. And that's really never left me. And we live in an erosional landscape. Um, I met a young woman who works for the United States Geological Survey. She's a geologist. And her definition of erosion, I think, is so beautiful. Her name is Joanne Holloway. And she said, for me, erosion is the inevitable process by which rock seeks the ocean. And what that reminds us is that weathering is when things are broken in place or worn in place. But erosion has to do with, with motion. It's, it's, it's what's being carried away. So when I think about erosion on the land or perhaps erosion of democracy that we're seeing right now, erosion of science and erosion of truth, um, I can tell you personally, an erosion of self, uh, an erosion of decency, however we might use this word, what is associated is not so much loss as movement. If we were to stand tonight um, on our porch, we would see the Milky Way as you see here. Um, Orion would just be rising in the south horizon where we are. And the four directions would, would be like this. Um, facing south from our porch, you would see the LaSalle Mountains that rise 2,000 feet above sea level. There's a skiff of snow right now. The golden leaves have fallen from the aspen. And there is a, a sway back peak called Takanikovitz, which means the peak that holds the last light of day. To the north, is the Colorado River running red right now, carrying, washing the sediments away from Utah's Red Rock Desert. To the west, 
certainly the setting sun. Again, those bright red cliffs called Porcupine Rim in the last light of day, just parallel um, with Takanikovitz. And to the east, you have um, Castleton Tower, a 400-foot freestanding monolith of Wingate sandstone. And right next to it is the priest and nuns. Beautiful examples of erosion. And every morning as the sun rises, you see them uh, backlit with dawn. Not long ago, a friend of ours called and said, I've met this new person. Can I bring her? I'd love her to see the desert and to meet you and Brooke. Um, and we just said, absolutely. We have a guest room. Our doors are wide open. They came. They both live in Manhattan. Um, we had a wonderful walk, what we call the circle rock, at the base of, of Castleton Tower. Um, we had a wonderful conversation, uh, dinner. We all cooked. We talked about the truth of our lives. And I just thought, this is so wonderful, you know, in the name of community. And then we all went to bed. They were in the guest room. We were in our room. And what felt like in the middle of the night, I heard this rustling. And I put on my robe, got up, went out, and there was this new friend, um, dressed, her bags packed, standing at the door. And I said, are you okay? And she said, no, I'm not. I have to get out of here. And she said, it's too dark, it's too quiet, it's too wild, it's too remote, it's too everything. And our friend Bob came out a bit scuffy and was putting on his shirt and grabbing his bags and said, I'm sorry. And Brooke came in, you know, got dressed. We walked them out. It was just um, pre-dawn. And in that first morning light, they got in their cars, uh, got in their car, rolled down the window. And she looked at me and she said, Terry, aren't you afraid you'll be forgotten? And what I wanted to say was, I hope so. <laughs> and, you know, the nitrogen cycle is fine by me. Um, but I didn't, and I don't think I even asked her. I think it was just a rhetorical question, and then they left. But as I thought about it, I thought, no, I'm not afraid of being forgotten. I, we will all be forgotten. But what I am afraid of is forgetting that the world is so beautiful in shadow and light. That 400-foot tower, Castleton Tower, was in the news uh, about two months ago. And I would like to take the liberty and read to you. Uh, it's a scientific paper from the Bulletin of the Seismological Society of America. Quote, at about the same rate that your heart beats, a Utah rock formation called Castleton Tower gently vibrates, keeping time and keeping watch over the sandstone desert. Swaying like a skyscraper, the red rock tower taps into the deep vibrations of the earth, wind, waves, and far-off earthquakes can be felt and heard. New research from the University of Utah geologist details the natural vibration of the tower. Quote, 
We often view such grand and prominent landforms as permanent features of our landscape when in reality they are continuously moving and evolving, says Riley Finnegan, a graduate student and co-author on the paper. First of all, I think this is the most beautiful science writing I've read, <laughs> and I was so impressed. And then the lead uh, scientist, Jeff Moore, says, quote, most people are in awe of Castleton Tower's static stability in its dramatic freestanding nature perched at the end of a ridge overlooking the desert hamlet of Castle Valley, says geologist Jeff Moore, who led the study. Quote, it has a kind of stoic power in its appearance, unquote. And then they go on to talk about what they were studying. They're looking at the viability, the strength, uh, the porosity of erosional landforms in southern Utah like bridges, like arches in Arches National Park, um, hoodoos, like in Valley of the Gods near Bears Ears National Monument. Um, they're wondering how long will they stand? You know, uh, how, what is the volume and, and strength of these arches that have been eroded through time? And so what they did is they enlisted two climbers um, to place one seismometer at the base of Castleton Tower, and it's, it's a very steep climb just to get to the base of the tower. And then they climbed up the 400 feet together uh, and placed another seismometer at the top. Let's listen to what they found. Castleton Tower has a pulse. The earth is alive. The world is so beautiful.
intuited living in the valley, science has confirmed. The Earth is alive. Castleton Tower has a pulse. We have a pulse. The pulse of the Earth is in our hands. What Native people have always known. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU. This is award-winning author Terry Tempest Williams speaking in Blue Hill in November. What those of us living in the American Southwest are struggling with right now is that this particular administration does not know this. And the Hopi, the Navajo, Diné, the Zuni, Ute, Mountain Ute, and Ure Ute have come together for the first time in history on behalf of Bears Ears. And what they have been saying is Bears Ears is sacred. Bears Ears is alive. This is where the bones of our ancestors are buried, they keep saying. Where on any given day you can hear the songs of the ancient ones through the wind in the canyons. This is where their ceremonies are held. This is where their medicines are found. In 2016, Barack Obama heard their cries and listened. And on December 28, 2016, by virtue of the 1906 Antiquities Act, established Bears Ears National Monument, 1.3 million acres set aside on behalf of these sacred lands and these native peoples. It was a handshake across history. It was a new level of trust that the tribes had not seen or felt for decades, centuries, with the United States government. It was a promise that traditional knowledge of, of native people would be woven in with Western science and federal agencies. And there was such celebration and faith abounding. Less than a year later, President Trump came to Utah in Salt Lake City, and with the stroke of his pen, the strike of his pen, and an executive order gutted Bears Ears National Monument by 85%, and cut Escalante Grand Staircase, Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument by half. Now, those lands that have been taken out of those protections are open for business. Oil and gas exploration, uranium mining, coal, and development. I went down to Navajo country and I asked Willie Gray Eyes, who's a community organizer and a man of great stature. Um, I said, Willie, what do you do with your anger? And I can tell you with a name like Tempest, I'm not very good at it. And he just said, Terry, it can no longer be about anger. It has to be about healing. And I'll be honest, that felt so passage, pass, passive to me. And I said, can you explain what you mean? And he said, if you have a sliver in the heel of your foot, you cannot begin to heal until you remove that sliver. He said, we have to go 
We have to find the source of our pain before we can begin to heal. So I would ask us to think about that tonight. What is the source of our pain personally and collectively? And if we can locate it, then perhaps we can begin to heal individually and as a community. And when I went to visit Jonah Yellowman, who's a medicine person who lives in Monument Valley, I asked him what he was seeing, what he was feeling, what he was hearing. And he said, we are in ceremony. And what the elders are telling us, and Jonah is 70 years old, he said, what the elders are telling us, I am going to tell you. We have to go deeper. What does that look like? What does that mean? What does that feel like for each of us with the gifts that are ours to go deeper? I can tell you what that feels like to me tonight. I was planning on reading something that maybe was angry, easy, uh, with a resolution. But when I walked in tonight and saw what Samantha had created, and when we looked at each other, we sat down right here and we both started to weep. And I realized I need to go deeper here with what I want to share with you. And I am mindful of the passing of Carl and Susan as a member. And I share in the grief and uh, difficulty of their deaths um, in both respecting their choice and also pondering it. And I can tell you that our own family um, has gone through our own grieving process. A year ago, on July 27th, my beautiful brother Dan um, hung himself. And I was thinking about Rilke, and I was thinking about Nietzsche, two writers that he loved. There are no beautiful surfaces without a terrible depth. So what I want to share with you tonight is a beautiful, terrible depth of a moment that I would not have asked for, but my youngest brother, Hank, who in my mind is a bodhisattva, who is fearless, who is not, he does not look away. And he made a vow to Dan who had said to him, I've been buried too long. Dan suffered from depression. He said, I need sky. Will you promise me that you will cremate me so I can fly? And he, uh, his greatest passion was working and banding birds of prey. How he would say that it took three humans to bring in a golden eagle. That a peregrine falcon was so swift and fast with such an, a piercing eye that you had to, to give them food to bring them in. And then he said his favorite bird was the red-tailed hawk because it was the one bird of prey that yielded and trusted them. So I want to share for the next 20 minutes um, the last part of an essay in Erosion, which really is the heartbeat of this book. And it's, it's at the very end, um, followed by an essay about Willie Gray Eyes um, called A Beautiful Rugged Place. And I read this um, tonight 
because as Nick and Mariah and Brooke and I were saying before I came, um, before we came, that sometimes it's just a beautiful healing grace to just sit quietly together and hear a story. We are only lightly covered with buttoned cloth, and beneath these pavements are shells, bones, and silence. Virginia Woolf, The Waves. The bouquet of sunflowers fell off the mantel onto the floor. I awoke to sunflower petals strewn across the carpet. I picked them up one by one and placed them in a pouch with two grouse feathers from Brooke and an owl feather that fell from the sky, snatched before it touched the ground, a gift from our son Louis. I took the red-tailed hawk feather resting on our bookshelf, given to me by Dan. I arrived in Salt Lake City from Jackson, Wyoming in a daze. Hank would meet me at the mortuary at 8.30 a.m. On my way, I called my father. He was not doing well. Hank greets me at Sunset Lawn. We hold each other tight and then walk into the funeral home that we know too well. We sit in the lobby and say little. The funeral director welcomes us and tells us the cremation will begin at nine o'clock and will take roughly six hours to completion. You are welcome to leave and come back when we call you to pick up the remains. We will stay, Hank says. I look at him, he is resolute. We ask to see Dan's body. We tell the funeral director he would like to spend some private, that we would like to spend some private time with Dan. He tells us that would be difficult as he is covered in plastic. We ask to have the plastic removed. There's a long pause. We say we want to touch his body before he enters the crematorium. The funeral director says he will see what he can do. He returns and says, it will take time to remove the plastic. We say that is all we have. The funeral director disappears. After 20 minutes, we are taken into the back of the mortuary where cremations occur. It is clear to us that this area is not meant for the public or for families. In Mormon country, cremation is discouraged. The door is opened for us and we see Dan's body draped in a white sheet. His shoulders are bare, and his hands are folded one over the other, above the sheet. We stand on either side of Dan's body, his beautiful long body. We are left alone with our brother. Dan's face is beautiful. I expect his eyes to open. His skin is translucent, and a deep peace has settled over his body. There is the slightest smile on his face, not forced or fixed by a mortician, his body has been washed, that is all. We see him, clean and pure. I pull out my pat pouch. Hank and I each take a grouse feather and place one east and one west beneath his hands, his beautiful hands that we could finally touch and hold, surprisingly feminine hands, in spite of a lifetime of digging. I hear him say, I have finally mastered dirt. Other phrases return to me, give me the sky, I've been buried too long, I have the rope tear, I'm done. He is done, we are undone. 
Into his resting hands we place feathers, the owl feather in his left hand, the red-tailed hawk feather in his right, the one bird of prey that yields. Hank and I, without words, intuitively place the sunflower petals on his heart laid bare, a pile of many petals to draw out the darkness from his troubled heart into light. Hank places one petal on his throat where a wide red line circling around his neck reveals his choice. And I place two yellow petals on his forehead, one vertical and one horizontal in a cross. In that moment, I heard Dan's voice as clear as day. Sunflowers tear, do you get it? Don't you get it? Don't you remember? I paused, confused, and then burst out laughing. Yes, I got it. I had forgotten the Sunflower Clan. I had forgotten the beauty of a late summer walk we made together through a radiant field of sunflowers the last time Dan was at our home. Brooke and Dan and I were on an afternoon stroll, Dan noting how all the sunflowers were facing the light. We made vows as self-appointed members of the Sunflower Clan to take care of one another and remind each other to follow the light in times of despair. Can I love myself enough to change, Dan asked, as we walked waist high in the yellow petaled field. Can I, sis? I saw Dan's choice as an act of self-love, a quick change of form from body to spirit. Could his suicide have been an act of courage, carried out by his own hands, his beautiful hands, his desire, finally, for a quick transformation of his burdened soul after decades of suffering? Maybe that's why the first thought out of my mouth on hearing he was dead was one of support. I returned to his body, cold. There is no romance here, only the brutality of truth. My brothers are before me, count them. Hank is alive, Dan is dead, Steve is dead. I'm the eldest, why was it not me? Hank and I stood on either side of Dan's body, now placed inside the blue cardboard box he would be burned in. We said our prayers to each other on Dan's behalf, and then, if I am honest, I felt Dan's impatience, his eagerness to get going. A man in a black suit from the mortuary entered and asked if we wanted more time. We said we were ready. The man thought we meant we were ready to go. Hank told him no that we would be staying through the entire process. I look at my brother. Are you sure, he asked. Hank said yes. By his side, I was reluctantly following Hank's lead. And so the man in the black suit pulled the two doors open that revealed the cremation chamber. The chamber was computerized. He set the dials to heat the furnace. Hank and I watched the neon numbers rise from 400 degrees Fahrenheit to 1100 degrees Fahrenheit. It was hot enough. He then pushed a button and the chamber door opened. Inside, we witnessed the flames fueled by natural gas and sounding like rocket boosters. The man nodded that now was the time. Hank and I lifted the box holding our brother's body into the flames. The chamber door came down. The man in the black suit closed the two white doors and left. The roar of the furnace was audible. Hank and I sat on a love seat against the wall. It was covered in red fabric with gold dragonflies. Nothing else in the room was comforting. 
It was a room of discard and storage. Filing cabinets, faces, plastic flowers, cardboard boxes, urns decorated with flags or doves or sunsets, a small desk with a computer on it, a few stray chairs with overhead lights. Clearly, this was not a space intended for the contemplation of loved ones. I got up and turned the lights off. It suddenly became very dark. Hank, forever the wry one, said, nice atmosphere, Tara. Another man in a black suit, an acquaintance from high school, came to check on us and asked if we might not be more comfortable sitting in the lobby. Hank and I said we were fine, that we would wait. But it will take up to six hours, he said. We're cool, Hank said. I smiled. Is there anything else you need? May we light a candle, I asked. His mouth moved sideways, let me check, and then he left. Hank and I looked around the room. We spotted two candles on the shelves and remarked at how uninspiring the art was, including a print of a misshapen girl in a pinafore holding a disgruntled cat. Then there was one with a garish sunrise whose bright orange rays appeared to be spiking through a forest of lime green trees with words I chose not to read. Our favorite, we concluded, was the tipped over milk can in a garden of gladiolas. If you're just joining us, this is award-winning author Terry Tempest-Williams speaking in Blue Hill in November. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. My friend from high school returned with his practice solemn demeanor and said, I'm sorry, Terry. No candles can be lit as it's against the fire code. <laughs> of course it is, I said, and then we all burst out laughing. Time passed, two hours, then three. Lynn Dalebout, a dear friend close to Dan, came to see us, and the three of us shared stories as we sat on the floor together. An astrologer, she read Dan's death chart for us. He was born on a lunar eclipse, and he went out on a lunar eclipse. One for the record book, she said, with all of Mars' energy behind it. On the night, Hank and I went to the medical examiner's office to identify Dan's body, I recalled once again how we held each other's hand, hands as the blood moon rose above the Wasatch Mountains with caged dogs howling behind us. He was a warrior, Lynn said. I flashed back to seeing Dan's body for the first time after his death and thinking to myself how noble he looked. That was the word that came to me. Hank and I could not believe this was our brother, that Dan was dead. This was a fact. The disbelief began to evaporate as I stroked his forehead. In life, he looked like our father. In death, he resembled our mother. Hank and I sat down on the brocade couch in silence. Dan's peace helped us gather our composure, and we believed seeing Dan's body would help soothe our father's heart. He le we left the room, closed the door behind us, and found our father in one of the mortuary waiting rooms, having finished signing the last documents, including Dan's death certificate. We told him we thought it would be good for him to see Dan's body, that he looked peaceful, that it would make it real. He hesitantly agreed. We descended the steep steps with Hank and me on either side of him. He was fragile, and then we entered the dimly lit room. With our father between us, we put our arms around him as he faced Dan's still body. I can't see him, he said. Shattered, he mourned his son, another son he had now outlived. And then his eyes 
finally clear of the tears, began to focus. He looks like a noble warrior who could have belonged to any time, he said. His hair was combed back, long, long curls touched his shoulders. His beard was brown with gray streaks. He was thin, too thin. His high cheekbones accentuated his chiseled face. He looks like Diane, our father said, shaking his head. Everyone always said he looked like me. We sat on the couch across from Dan for some time, and then our father stood up abruptly. As we left, he put his hand on Dan's shoulder. Thank you, Dan. The door opened. I jumped, startled. The man in the black suit entered again. You may want to leave now. I'm about to shift the bones. We are staying, Hank said. I made a vow to our brother. The man in the black suit then introduced himself. His name was Brian Rabe. We shook hands. He pulled the white doors open. The heat from the retort seared our faces. Mr. Rabe took off his jacket and folded it neatly and placed it on the back of a chair. He then put on a pair of long gray welding gloves, the same kind of welding gloves Dan had used, welding pipe. We stood behind him as the chamber door to the crematorium was drawn up. Dan's body was burning. Our brother's rib cage had become white paper prayer flags flapping inside the flames. His arms looked like wings. And in that moment, Dan was Icarus, kin to the eagles he'd loved and released in Utah's wilderness. We watched Mr. Rabe rake Dan's bones with the grace of a Zen master in meditative motion like a dance with the dead. His body was being disassembled, spread across the floor of the gray brick chamber. Hank and I were mesmerized, witnessing the beauty Dan was becoming. How the process was vaporizing a human body from flesh to spirit. And then, after the final rearrangement of bones, Mr. Rabe stepped back with his rake, assessed the situation, and pushed the button once again as the door to the chamber closed. Mr. Rabe took off his gloves and placed his rake to the side we walked back into the low-lit room as he shut the white doors behind him. We thanked him. He nodded his head as he, we resumed our place on the love seat of dragonflies. Our friend who stood with us said she felt blessed to have witnessed what we had, as she had not been present at her father's cremation, unaware it was an option, also aware it was not an option for her. She used the word healing, although I am not sure what I heard as the moment had transcended anything I could rationally comprehend. Hank and I sat in silence for another stretch of time, another hour or two passed, and Mr. Rabe returned, this time inviting us to watch him gather the bones before he ground them into ash. The doors opened, the chamber door rose, and Dan was gone. The chamber was empty. I was shocked by the void that only hours before had held his physical body. Mr. Rabe put the welding gloves back on and began raking. Dan's remains rhythmically into stainless steel trays. Hank and I watched as our brother's bones were swept into view, now recognizable as parts of the human anatomy. The ball of a broken femur. Finger bones, ulna, radius, rib fragments, a shard here and there, a glimpse of skull, his jaw, his beautiful jaw, and many vertebrae. 
all being lovingly raked into the trays through the deliberateness and artistry of Mr. Rabe's care. With the larger fragments now gathered in two trays, he took out a fine brush and swept the dust and smaller particles of our brother into another smaller tray with such tenderness. We stood in awe of the reverence and respect this stranger was showing our brother. This was a holy act, a ritualized act, performed with great dignity, usually unseen and unacknowledged by anyone. We followed Mr. Rabe into a stark room where he would separate the bones further before they would be ground into ash. He excused himself, which was a generosity, and left Hank and me alone with our brother's cremains. Hank and I stood before trays of white bone fragments. What are you thinking, I asked. Probably the same thing you were thinking, Hank replied. Are they coyote or rabbit or raven? He said, smiling. How many times have we come across similar piles of sun-bleached bones in the desert, I asked. As siblings, we gathered those bones. We collected those bones. We wanted to touch them, but instead placed our hands just close enough to feel the heat emanating from them. The remaining energy of our brother's life was being transferred into the palms of our hands. There is no hierarchy in death. No hierarchy of lives. It is this hierarchy that allows them to be inferiorized, stigmatized, and brutalized while other lives are privileged. We are prisoners of an ideology that prevents us from seeing the world as it is. We are captives of a view of things that gives them a false appearance of self-evidence. Our task is to change the world. No, our task is to change our view of the world. There is no hierarchy in death. There are only bones. Mr. Rabe returned. We did not speak. We simply watched him meticulously separate the bones with long, narrow tweezers. He looked for metal and found some in Dan's teeth. With special pliers, he pulled out fillings and placed them in a box with other fillings from the dead to be recycled, with proceeds going to the local children's hospital. Bone fragments were then separated into what looked like pieces of coral. Smaller pieces resembled shells, white shells, then Mr. Rabe took an even finer paintbrush and swept the last particles of Dan into what looked like a small ripple of sand found on the periphery of the Pacific Coast beaches. He brushed the bone dust into a metal container followed by the sordid bone fragments. He turned to us and quietly asked if we were comfortable watching him grind the bones. It would take roughly 50 seconds. We said yes. He turned on the switch like a morning blender, and we listened to the bass notes of our brother becoming the melody of Ash. And then it was silent. Would you like to feel the last heat from your brother's life, Mr. Rabe asked. Hank and I held Dan in our hands for the final time. Dan's ashes would be placed into a simple black container that Hank could put in his backpack and carry into Utah's wild desert, where Dan banded and released golden eagles in their vast terrain of sky. 
Mr. Rabe took the container, opened it, and poured the warm ashes inside. We inhaled our brother. The box was closed. Mr. Rabe handed Dan's cremains to Hank. We thanked Mr. Rabe for the grace of his work and for taking care of our brother. We experienced it as a sacred rite. It is my privilege and my calling, he said. I know that I'm the last person to touch the body of an individual who was loved. I take that very seriously. He paused. Thank you for witnessing what I do. Mr. Rabe walked Hank and me to the foyer of the mortuary. Everyone had gone home. We shook hands once again. One more thing, he said. It's been my experience that when you scatter Dan's ashes, there is usually a sign that lets you know when you have found the right place, the shape of a cow, the call of a bird, some sign in nature. Hank told him that he planned on taking Dan's ashes into the Cedar Mountains west of Salt Lake City. A beautiful, rugged place, Hank said. Mr. Rabe smiled. My family name is German. When translated into English, Rabe means raven. I want you both to know I felt your brother's essence. I had a strong feeling we would have liked each other. We carried Dan's remains to our father's home. We walked inside and found John, as Hank calls him, sitting at his desk waiting for us. We sat down and told him this story. Dan's ashes weighed eight pounds, seven ounces, the same weight as when he was born. It is also the weight of a gallon of water one carries in the desert. Two days later, Hank put Dan's ashes into his backpack and headed toward the Cedar Mountains wilderness area, several mountain ranges west of Salt Lake City in Utah's Great Basin, just south of Great Salt Lake. Hank hiked for four hours straight up a particular peak that both he and our brother and father knew that Dan had inhabited during the winter months when his work entailed taking deer carcasses out to the West Desert to lure golden eagles down to the foothills for yearly population counts. Hank did, in fact, recognize a sign, a stone pinnacle in the shape of an eagle head very near the summit. He knelt down on the pale, steep ground where a flat spot emerged next to a bare-boned tree sculpted by the wind into the shape of a cross. Hank released the white ashes of Dan's body to the earth and sky, acknowledged by a circling hawk above that he could hear but not see, one body yielding to another. The earth is alive. Stone has a pulse. Bones in the desert remind us there is a bare bleached beauty radiating heat. In life, there is death. In death, there is life. How do we find the strength to not look away at all that is breaking our hearts? We cannot do it alone. We do it together. In community, anything is possible.
It can no longer be about anger. It has to be about healing. We have to go deeper to locate our pain. What has been weathered and whittled away is as beautiful as what remains. Erosion. We are eroding and evolving at once. We need not lose hope. We just need to locate where it dwells. Hands on the earth we remember. Castleton Tower has a pulse. We have a pulse. The pulse of the planet is in our hands. Engagement is a prayer. And sometimes we just need to sit together in quiet and tell a story. Thank you for holding this silence together. time for some questions. Uh, the question is, how does the sound technically get registered? I don't know. Uh, but I've been in contact with two of the graduate students, and I've corresponded with Mr. M Dr. Moore. And I think you know how you've all seen those um, seismographs that register earthquakes. I think it's like that, that it's, it's a high-frequency um, stethoscope, for lack of a better word, that then registers the waves, and in this case, the audio of them, so that they were saying that they, they had to wait like four hours for the climbers to get from the base to the top, and you know, they prayed that they would make it. It's a, it's a really rigorous climb. I remember when I turned, I was about to turn 50, and um, there's 250 people that live in Castle Valley, and most of them are climbers. This is one of the great climbs of the world. And Kitty Calhoun, who's a great climber, I said to her, do you think that you could, that you could get me up for my 50, 50th birthday to the top of Castleton Tower? And she looked at me and she goes, I think we could figure out a hall system. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a serious climb, so they had to wait. And they had on their earphones, and when they finally got the top one done, they turned them on, and this is what they heard. And it just blew their minds. And the total recording that they gave me is three minutes long. We heard about two minutes of it. But the longer, the, the longer you listen to it, you really do start hearing that heartbeat. And, and that's, I said, how did you write so beautifully you know, about this? And he said, because we were so aware that, that the heartbeat of this stone, the porosity of the vibrations that was moving through from the core of the earth, registering the waves of the magma and the waves and earthquakes of the surrounding area, even a helicopter, took on the cadence of our own heartbeats. 
And he said, we were not prepared for that. And you think about, you know, if that kind, if stone has a pulse, what are we doing? What are we doing to this planet? That was Terry Tempest Williams speaking at the Bay School in Blue Hill on November 16th, as well as an excerpt from the question and answer session that followed her talk. The event was sponsored by Blue Hill Books, the Bay School, and WERU, and recorded by WERU volunteer Phelan Gallagher. I'm Amy Brown. Thanks for listening to Maine Current's independent local news, views, and culture, and be sure to join us at our new day and time starting in January. Maine Currents will be moving to the first and third Tuesdays of each month. We'll be on at 4 p.m. along with all of the 10 o'clock public affairs programs. We are moving to 4 p.m., so hopefully more of you will be able to listen and participate. On the first Tuesday of each month, we'll have Maine Currents as it currently exists. And on the second edition, which will fall on the third Tuesday of each month, we'll be covering Elections 2020 and having call-in programs. So we hope you'll all join us for that. Keep it tuned here now to WERU as we have On the Wing with Mark Dyer coming up next only here on Community Radio WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org and on our new phone app. If you don't have it, get it. Go to our website to find out how, WERU.org. You can carry WERU with you wherever you go.